You're listening to the Exhibitionist Podcast, brought to you by InspiringExhibitors.com and ProExtra, a wholly owned division of 12 Man Solutions Limited. Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the Exhibitionist, the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again, and we hope you've had a fantastic couple of weeks pulling together your trade show plans, hopefully using some of the advice and inspiration you've heard in our podcasts or via the website. We've got two big features on this episode. Firstly, it's fantastic that one of our listeners, Jason, has got in touch with his trade show trouble, so we'll be going to him shortly to try and help him resolve his issue. And then we'll be following that up with our main feature, which is a conversation with Cathy Forsyth, who has worked in the health and safety and operations area of trade shows for a number of years. And it's probably the area that most of us dread the most and feel quite nervous about. But Cathy's going to help everybody understand why it's important to spend time thinking about operations and what you can do to make it easier for yourselves. The great news in between the last podcast and now is that we have signed the deal with our publisher for the Exhibitionist, the book. So that's now going into final production and will be hitting the websites and bookshops from February, March time of next year. So that's packed full with even more advice and inspiration for you guys to help make sure you get the most that you possibly can out of your trade show campaigns. But enough of us for now, we've got a packed show this episode, so I'm going to hand straight over to our conversation earlier in the week with Jason, and we'll help him solve his trade show trouble. So this week, we are delighted because we have had contact from one of our listeners who wants some help with their trade show challenge. So we're uh, excited to welcome to the show this week, Jason. So hello, Jason. Hello there. Thank you for coming on board. So just explain to us the challenge that you've got that you've experienced recently. Yeah, sure. So. I, I got in touch because we were we we've been speaking um, about the sort of different types of um, guests that you get at, at shows, and and in in my world, we we're, we're working with a lot of uh, retailers, a lot of um, independent retailers who um, they can you know their levels of engagement can vary between um, you know highly engaged, wanting to know lots of questions about the categories that you're working in. Um, but unfortunately, the last show I was at, uh, the retailers were more at the other end of the spectrum where they were really just queuing up for everything they could take, take for free off the stand, everything they could take out of uh, display cabinets. Um, you know, they were carrying multiple carrier bags full of stock um, and just looking to, to get something for nothing. And um, I'm really interested to sort of get get some insights in terms of how we deal with those guys because you know you don't want to push them away you don't want to um upset them because they are your customers and they are buying your product but at the same time um you know at the end of three or four long days at a show it can be very difficult to not uh, treat them with the disrespect that they're showing you so uh, any help and guidance is is great gratefully received it's a really interesting one and um just to clarify for anybody who's listening who's not quite sure of that scenario so it would be food and drink environment and potentially um visitors could be looking to get free samples of things that they could then go and put on their shelves and sell as a one-off rather than looking to stock a product long term yeah i think that's the worry generally at these shows you feel like you're being treated as a uh, as a cash and carry but there's no cash involved there's just a lot of carry <laughs> um it's a really difficult one and 
when we're working with clients, when we're um, on our workshops, we do talk about those tire kickers who are coming along just to scoop up as many freebies as they can. And every show has their fair share of those kind of visitors. And, and that's really unfortunate, but I think is probably to a certain degree a reality. Um, maybe a couple of things to think about that we've talked with people around are having different levels of giveaway. So mm-hmm. if you have some kind of smaller value uh, packs maybe at the front of the the stand that people can if if they are tire kickers if there isn't any uh, potential for a long-term relationship you can give them something that's kind of low value but they at least feel like they've got something and move them on quite quickly before some of your interested browsers or definite customers or existing customers come along and you can actually move them towards the back of your stand have a more engaged conversation and do some of the filtering and then mm-hmm. think about kind of you know actually this relationship's got potential to go somewhere and you're happier to maybe give them some some packs that they might put on sale but actually you would know that that was more of a trial for them to see if their customers were interested and giving them some feedback rather than um just taking them and, and taking them for a freebie but i know steve what was what are your thoughts on any options well one of the one of the options that we did talk about uh, when this came through was um brand packaging mm-hmm. so if you had availability of one of your co-packers to um, pack your samples for a trade show and having the word sample or trade show stock only, then they have no option that they can't sell it, especially Mm. if it's not, if it's got not for resale on Um, and they're going to, yes, they can take it. Yes, they can use it. And maybe then they will stock it from that. But at least then you aren't going, going away thinking I've just been robbed and they're just going to make money out of, my show stock sure does that help give you any kind of advice on what you might do it does yeah i think yeah i think the biggest challenge often comes i i alluded to it earlier at the uh at the end of a show when uh you may have other stands on the uh at the show that are you know keen to offload as much stock as they can to not get home so you'll you'll see the guys walking around with you know crates of beer boxes of crisps rolls of toilet roll um you know and it's in an environment like that it can be difficult to sort of turn down the guy who wants to take a case of the you know your product off the shelf but it's i think they're all useful tips in in helping us to say you know to manage that manage people's expectations and and particularly as well you know i work in a in a temperature controlled environment so um you know i don't really want my product coming out of a chiller sitting in the back of a boot for seven hours sort of getting up to a nice warm ambient temperature where sort of mold and all sorts of bugs are gonna are gonna be created and then get stuck back into a chiller and sold to the general public because often the first person you know i'll be the i'll be the person that gets a complaint not the retailer so um you know it's just understanding all of that and, and managing it accordingly and actually i think that's a great point that might give you a conversation to have with a, a visitor if they're wanting to take a, a lot of product away, you know, in saying, actually, this is a temperature sensitive product and yeah. from a health and safety perspective. So just legally, I have an obligation to make sure that it is safe for human consumption. Yeah. I can't control that. Um, and therefore I can't give it to you because I don't know that that's going to be safe if it did, did end up back on your shelves again. Because obviously when you're making deliveries, you can track the pro the progress of those orders yeah. right through the supply chain in a way that, that you can't if you're just yeah. giving boxes of stock to people to show. So Potentially, that's the way you can... can Yeah, and and another idea that came up this week in a conversation at a a local roadshow event was actually just getting some dummy pack made up. Um, So, you know, if someone does 
acquire it off your stand and or they get some polystyrene wrapped in packaging um <laughs> which which may be a good way of, of sort of keeping your brand out there in terms of presence but not uh, uh not sort of costing you an arm and a leg in stock that's uh, going to go walk about and you're going to lose control over yeah, yeah that does bring back up uh, something that we saw a food show this year where a manufacturer was he had their machine on running god knows how many sausages per minute using play-doh and we actually watched retailers go and take dummy sausages and actually bite into them. One, it was clearly marked as Play-Doh, but who actually, if it was meat, it would have been raw meat anyway. It's just, I think sometimes at, at shows, the retailers just lose the plot. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me a lot, this of um, going back to our days where we've run uh, trade shows in the food and drink industry and and worked for exhibitors and there was very much a culture of swaps at the end of a show and yeah. actually some of the stand squad were some of the worst culprits for a yeah. couple of hours before the end of a show running around all the different stands trying to swap their leftover yeah. samples and you know visitors have fed back to us quite rightly that they feel that that's quite disrespectful because you're saying to them we, yeah. we can't give you any free samples of ours but yet you've got all the stand staff running around handing out samples to get back bottles of water or yeah, I know it's something you guys are big on in terms of those those standards on the on on the actual on the actual stand in terms of not eating, not drinking, you know, not reading mobile phones, doing emails. And I think the point about swaps at the end is is, is another is another good one. I mean, um, I've kind of having done a few of these now over the years. I've kind of like got sick and tired of getting home with a boot full of stuck stuff that my wife just turned around and goes, well, we're never going to use any of that. I mean, what have you brought it back for? And I'm like, yeah, but it was free. I only had to exchange, you know, this for that. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to see swaps banned completely. And because, you know, the, the, it doesn't look great when all the staff are running around, you know, trying to get a bottle of vodka for a, you know, a packet of crisps or something. It's, yeah. it's not a great look and it encourages the, the, the people attending the show to do the same thing. So Yeah. It's quite interesting though. It's very much a food and drink phenomenon. It's, it's quite the culture in amongst a lot of food and drink shows, but you go to a, the motorhome and caravan show as we were at last week or building shows or, you know, and actually there's no desire to run around and do swaps at those shows. So yeah. it is quite exclusive for the food and drink industry. So I think one of the things as well we've just been thinking about since you got into it, Jason, is actually sometimes um, there is just an imp Im implicit cost in running trade shows. And actually um, something that exhibitors don't necessarily think about is you are creating giveaways to give away um, yep. and that kind of hanging on to them um, is as much kind of as a sin as your freebie Phoebe just handing them out to everybody passing. So it's been really clear about what are you using those giveaways for? What behavior do you want to drive? What conversation do you want to drive? What's the next things that are going to happen? And I think, you know, all giveaways have their place in helping you get to the end point, whatever that might be. And sometimes your giveaway is actually just a way of moving somebody along. So yeah. I, I think sometimes there's almost just that acceptance of actually it's just a cost we've got to, we've got to bear. I think you're right. I think it's part of, you know, if you have an overall objective for what you're trying to get out of the show, then I think I think your giveaways have a role to play within that. Um, I think, unfortunately, it's yeah, the situation I've been experiencing has been more when you're you're just filling stock into a into a chiller or onto a shelf, and uh, and and just retailers are looking to relieve you of that at the end of the day. It's the classic line we always say, actually. Though, is how would those retailers feel if you just walked into their store and said, "Oh, yeah, I'm just going to take these because you don't really need them, do you?" And it's not a different position from yeah. that. And also, I think a new phenomenon as well, the last 
two or three years um lots of shows uh, partner up with local charities um local food banks and, and what have you um and I, yeah i found myself this year and in previous times saying you know what? i'm not giving this stock away it's going to charity at the end of the day and and that feels like a a, a very good way of saying no but you know uh, taking the uh, uh the upper hand as it were and you know yeah uh, and making sure that the stock finds a, a good home uh, at the end of the show. Yeah, great shout, great shout. Definitely all the, the food and drink shows tend to partner up with um, local food banks and charities. Yeah. So it's it's a brilliant way of uh, moving that conversation along. So so hopefully we've given you a little bit of food for thought there and some inspiration. Oh, no pun intended there, but hopefully you have got a little bit of food yeah. for thought. You um, have indeed, thank you. <laughs> and hopefully that helps. Do get back in touch, let us know when you've, uh, run your next trade show if any of that helped if you put any of it into practice um and had some uh, some retailers who are uh, less frustrating at the end of the day and stealing your stock but um thank you so much for getting in touch you're very welcome thank you very much so if you have a trade show trouble like jason on any industry or any kind of challenge please do get in touch with us via twitter at pro extra co or via the website www.inspiringexhibitors.com and we would love for you to come on the show and talk about your problem. So thanks to Jason for getting in touch with his trade show trouble and hopefully that conversation has given him some inspiration but also helped any other exhibitors of you who are listening in and having the same problem with some visitors who maybe want to just take a few of your freebies and not actually have a conversation to find out whether you can do business together. So on to our main feature for today, and as I mentioned, we're going to be chatting with Cathy Forsyth. It is a slightly longer episode today, and that's mainly because there's so much valuable information that we wanted to pack it all in. But we'll hand over to Cathy now and hope you enjoy the chat. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking all things operational and the pitfalls that can mean your stand doesn't even make it onto the show floor. So I'm delighted that we're joined by hugely experienced operations manager, Cathy Forsyth. So welcome to the show, Kathy. Hello. Kathy, before you get into sharing your advice and experience with us, just give us a little bit of background on your career in the events industry. Yes, certainly. I um, started off just doing uh, conferences. Uh, there were sort of one-day, two-day ones in the tax, pensions and accountancy fields. Uh, then I moved into medical, and that, again, was the conferences, but then that's when I first came into the exhibition world because they were attached to all the medical symposia. And um, I did that for eight and a half years. Uh, then moved into the travel industry exhibitions for two and a half years and went to larger venues. And then for the last 13 years, I've been in food and drink exhibitions, mainly um, at what was Earl's Court, um, now, then Olympia and the NEC, and then taking some British pavilions overseas to New York and Amsterdam. You've got a really wide range of industries and countries there, and you're going to have some fantastic experiences to share with us over the next 20 minutes or so. But firstly, how can operations managers help exhibitors to have a great show? Well, we put together the whole in infrastructure for them to have both a safe and a successful show. And we get together, we, we, we build our teams of approved contractors to just make sure that everything flows as smoothly as possible. It's really interesting you say that operations managers help keep people safe. Quite often we hear from exhibitors that operations managers are there to stop the exhibitors from doing what they want to do, to which we reply, no, they're there to keep people from harm. That, that is right. <laughs> we don't want them walk, working at height. We don't want them falling to their deaths. We want them to, to, to be safe and have be around for the shows. So without naming any names, 
Can you give us a couple of examples of disasters that you've witnessed at events over the years? I wouldn't say that huge disasters, but there's always there's always challenges. And however prepared you are for going on site, you never quite know what's going to happen from like a 200 square meter stand near the front of the show, suddenly not being able to be there um, because they can't make it into the country or they haven't got the right stand to build. So you have to come up with ideas of what to, to how to fill that space effectively. Um, we've got... Uh, another overseas stand who turned up on site. They were supposed to be building a double-decker stand in three days. They got held up. They ended up with one man coming with the hugest lorry uh, to build it in a day and a half. And when he unloaded everything, they didn't have the right parts that had already been um, agreed on. So then we had to get an extra staff. The structural engineer was on site. I mean, it it went on and on and on. And then in the end, they, they did build it and it looked great, but they couldn't use the upper level because it was deemed to be unsafe for people to go up there. Um, we've had a flood at one venue. We've had a fire at another. We've had a faulty carpet where there was pink fluff absolutely everywhere. So um, the cleaning uh, staff at the venue really kicked in on that. Um, we've had, now we, we appoint official contractors and we do that for a reason. And so that we have, they can track everything. Um, for example, the, um, the freight forwarders that um, we use at shows, they can, if you use them, then they've, they're there on site. They've got an idea of when everything's coming in, where everything is, and they're, they're always looking out for your goods and where they are. So when a, an exhibitor comes in on the sort of two days before we, we open and say, oh, my product hasn't arrived yet, and we say, who have you used? And they uh, say, another contractor. It's then, if it's the weekend, there is no way of tracing where this package is uh, because they haven't got the right codes and the right numbers and the office isn't manned. So sometimes, and it has happened on two or three occasions, the show has opened with an exhibitor who has no product. Uh, and then there was one exhibitor a few years ago who it, it eventually turned up on day three. So they kind of stood there with a food product, sort of trying to sell a food product without it, talking about how great it is. And it wasn't until day three that they could actually show it to anybody. Um, and then there's the one about, sort of, I think the main word throughout our, our chat today is going to be communication. And um, at the shows we did um, this year, we had an exhibitor who had a product coming from the continent. They were, um, it wasn't just a product, it was, it was a huge piece of machinery. And it was supposed to arrive on the Friday, it didn't come, didn't come on the Saturday. They're, they're ring, trying to find contact numbers to try and get it there. And they, their, their whole exhibition, they have, they have a really massive stand. And this, this huge bit of machinery was what they were exhibiting and what it could do. And um, they they got it to, a, a, they, they couldn't contact anybody, no, nothing there. Obviously, our contractors can't, can't help them because they don't know who they've used. Um, it turns out on the Monday morning um, at our offices in West Sussex, the lorry has been parked there for two days because they've been given the wrong address. The driver doesn't speak any English, bless him, and our facilities manager had to kind of draw a map and show him where Birmingham was because this piece of machinery was so so large. He, he then had to drive all the way to Birmingham uh, and we couldn't get it in because of the size of it on the first day. It had to be specially brought in after show closed and everyone had left on that, that first evening. So at least they had it for two days. But, you know, this piece of machinery, if everything had been communicated correctly, to everybody it, it could have been there earlier there's loads of examples there 
and I think people don't really necessarily think through the implications of what could go wrong when they're exhibiting. Exhibitors quite often only see themselves in their own world. They don't realise there could be a thousand other exhibitors trying to get their kit and equipment into a venue ready for show opening. You talk there about communication being really important. Can you think of an example where that really early communication has helped save what could have been a big problem for an exhibitor, but by working together, you've come up with a great result? Yes, it's we we only have um where i have been working we only had one compulsory form for all exhibitors obviously if you've got a space only stand then exhibitors have a lot more paperwork to complete but we only asked for one form and it was called the exhibitor declaration form and on that we were asking questions that could then avert a crisis for example um we talked because we were in the food and drink industry it was talking to you um telling us about what they're doing on their stands with regards to food and drink sampling. And for example, some, some exhibitors, we asked what they were cooking um, and how they were cooking it. And a few, ca- very few, but some do come back saying, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're cooking on open, uh, open cooking on charcoals. It's like, um, okay, um, what about ventilation, all that sort of thing? And the venues, I mean, the venues would not allow that and rightfully so. Um, uh, then also LPG gas, a lot of venues don't allow that in. So it's, it's kind of preempting them already getting on site with all their kit and being ready to go. And then the health and safety officer saying, you can't do that. So we, we've stopped them. Um, we, we've, pre- we've prepared them so that they are, they've got the right bits and pieces to cook on site. Um, also about the, the you know food hygiene if they're saying they're doing this, then we have to send them further information about hand wash facilities and just making sure that the environmental health officer doesn't come and go, oh, you can't do that and shut them down from sampling their product or making them, for example, one uh, exhibitor was didn't have any hand wash facilities uh, on day one at a show. So they stopped them cooking with chicken and beef, but they let them do it with vegetables. And then the next time, uh, the next day, they'd got some hand wash facilities on board. They'd had a, a sink plumbed in, so they were able to move back to chicken and beef. Um, so helping them find different methods of cooking and helping them set up with their right hygiene facilities. Um, some exhibits, some exhibitors want to do oversized sampling. Uh, the venues, a lot of venues, are very strict about the smaller size of samples, both with alcohol. Uh, non-alcoholic drinks and food. So it's kind of preempting them coming on site with two larger samples and then the venue slapping them with an oversized sampling fee. So it's making sure that they can sample what they want within the right size and, and not having huge uh, fees put on top of them. If there are large exhibits, letting us know about large exhibits so we can plan to get them into the hall early because uh, there's nothing worse than everything being set up with all your space only stands, all your shell scheme stands, everything in place, and then having to lift uh, however many ton piece of machinery in over it. It's dangerous. And sometimes we have to say no because it is so dangerous. Um, but it's okay if, if they let us know in advance, we can get it in first, we can position it, and then everything else can be built around it. Same with vehicles getting them in on time, letting us know you've got a vehicle because aisles are either two to three metre wide. Most vehicles will go down that, but sometimes they're on a a bend and they've got to curve round and then there isn't enough space there. So again, getting the vehicles in early Uh, and then letting us know about live animals. 
Live animals. Live animals. We had um, crabs and lobsters on display. And we we um, employed uh, ele electricians overnight to check the um, all the, the fridge. They, they would work out a list along the... Um, around the show and they would work out the susceptible stands for example ice cream stands and pates and anything with a, a live animal in uh, for example these live crabs and lobsters you had to keep their system on otherwise they would die um, and then we had to, to keep that on for half an hour after the show sorry electricity is normally kept on half an hour after a show we had to keep it on a little longer so they could then transport get them get the containers in their transport containers move the lot the the um, lobsters and crabs into these containers and then get them out we didn't want to turn it off and let them die in that last that intervening time <laughs> and it's those sorts of things that exhibitors never really think about and never genuinely believe that a health and safety officer will say to them we're not allowing this you can't build your stand yeah and, and they will kathy it's so good to hear you say that we often talk to clients about this and they just don't believe that it ever happens so although it's pretty rare sometimes it does happen and I've seen not at one of the shows I've done but that I have seen a stand at an exhibition that has been completely taped off <laughs> and nobody has been allowed on it obviously it had got to a point where they'd built it to so far they'd run out of time and it was deemed unsafe not unsafe to fall down in, a, in an aisle but if you were on it so yeah. it, it had been taped up that does happen and that's never going to reflect well on your brand or your budget when you've spent so much getting to this point, but you never actually deliver a fully built stand. Um, so talking about challenges, what is the most exciting or challenging show you've ever worked on and what did you learn from it? I think I'm going to do that in two parts. One is um, launching a new show uh, and seeing that grow and when you're dealing with a new set of exhibitors who need training right from the start, who might not have had a show in their area before, uh, and then talking them through it, sometimes it can be quite challenging because they've got lots and lots of questions. But then getting them there, seeing the show open, and the whole buzz created, and um, then when the visitors meet the exhibitors and just seeing, seeing it grow year on year, that is exciting. And then uh, having, an, on the other scale, having an established show where you've got, we, we do a we did a large large food machinery show, which was always challenging with the, the size of the stands, the size of the machinery, and everything that had to be uh, brought in. Um, building up your working relationship with all your contractors, so that when things are lifted in, sometimes they come in in the wrong size, and you might have built all your shell shell scheme, so some of the shell might have to come down. And just trying to work out the best way, planning it from the start, but then other people are always going to, to kind of um, throw a spanner in the works. So then it's being able to rely on your contractors and get the job done. Um, but the little shell might have to come down, the lifting might have to go in a different way. So it's, it's all working together um, to do that. Uh, and then with the, that show, there are so many, because the stands are so big, there are, we have walling regulations so that you're not blocking off other stands. It's uh, in compromise to see how it can work with, um, you can put perspex in walls and just see that you, it, it's, it's, a, it's an open show so that no one feels completely blocked off. 
Uh, and then with that comes the banners and lighting rigs, and that brings its own set of uh, rules and regulations and making sure they're all at the correct height so that everyone's happy and somebody's banner isn't above anybody else's, uh, that they feel they're getting more prominent. So it's, it's, um, it's a fine balance, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping everybody happy. That's right. <laughs> the exhibitor manual is usually the place where exhibitors can go to find every single answer to every single question that they might have but it's probably the document that exhibitors spend the least amount of time with. So how do you think exhibitors can benefit from spending a little bit more time early on in the process digesting what's in their manual? They could learn so, so much. When we send out the the manuals, we, we have a back office and we can see how many people have logged on. Uh, after say two weeks we can see the percentage which is never very high we then email them again um, to say if they've uh, just to remind them to log on sorry we, we email the ones who haven't logged on to remind them then there's a little upsurge on that and you're still left with probably about 40 to 50 percent who haven't logged in with logged on within the first month uh, we then ring them all just to check that we're sending the emails and the links to the right place. Because, again, the word communication, uh, the, the relevant contact that we've got at the company might have left. They've passed it on to someone else or and they, they, they don't realise what's happening or they haven't passed it on to someone else and no one at the firm knows they're exhibiting. So we have quite a few conversations with going, oh, I didn't know we were exhibiting at that show. When is it? What's it about? What have we got? And so, so that goes on. Um, so it's, 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 everything is there on the exhibitor manual. We spend a huge amount of time setting it all up. Um, and it's got everything, whether you're a shell scheme or a space only. They, they, they've come on so much in recent years. Ours, you could do like a keyword if you were looking for something about, say, costumed characters. You'd type that in and it would tell you what you needed. Uh, and for example, for the shell scheme stands, you've got, what the difference is between a shell and space and what's included in a shell and the size of the panels and how to affix signage to walls. Um, and then for space only, you've got what documentation is required, all the deadlines, instructions for hanging bands, everything is there. And if they just, if every, if every exhibitor just logs on once and then just sees it all, they can upload their details um, and their logos onto the website. And they, they know then uh, when a visitor, potential visitors are looking, then they've got, they've got something there rather than just a name. And they're missing out on a lot um, of traffic going through the website if it's not there. That's such a big number of almost half of all exhibitors don't log on or access the exhibitor manual website in the early days of their planning. They do, they do eventually log on, but it's, we're, we're ringing and we're, we're, we're nagging, basically. Yeah. It yeah. comes to the point where we need that compulsory exhibitor declaration form back. And they need to go on to do that. But, you know, within the first month, yes, you're looking at very high percentages not, of not, not, uh, not logging on. So digesting the exhibitor manual is one of the biggest pitfalls that exhibitors can fall into. But what are the other common operational mistakes that you've seen exhibitors make? Um, yes, communication. Uh, not keeping um, a record of things. Now, you could... You, I don't want to advocate killing lots of trees, but just keeping, we, we don't send out a lot of correspondence. We will send out um, a welcome letter, a copy of the floor plan, uh, a copy of the contract, and a copy of our terms and conditions. But it's either saving them somewhere, scanning and saving them on um, a, de a file that's easy for everyone to access within the company who'd need it, 
or having a, a hard copy manual, a hard copy file where they file it. Because as I said earlier, if, if they leave the company uh, and no one's got any record of it, then that doesn't help anyone. And they've booked. They know it's a for she- if it's a shell or a space stand. Um, we also have started sending, in my last year, we, 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 we'd also started sending out a little sheet with um, the welcome pack saying, this is a shell scheme stand. You have booked uh, this. This is what it entails. This is a shell scheme stand. This is what it entails, just in case they book the wrong thing. Yeah. Now, I know that if you're booking for a show a year out or two years out, there might be a big change in your budgets. You might think, oh, we've got the money to build an all singing, all dancing space only stand now. Let's let's change uh, and vice versa. So it does happen, but there is also an element of the person who booked the stand not knowing exactly what they're booking. Not logging onto the manual early enough and getting their information up, logo up, uh, I feel that's that's a lost opportunity. Uh, also, not, and also linking on to that, if they haven't ordered, if they haven't logged on, they haven't ordered their services. Sometimes, perhaps the early bird deadlines, so then that's costing them money. Yeah. Uh, going online and getting ordering their visitor invitations and links, and not taking advantage of the opportunity to target their own database. I mean, there are their, those are their key people and. To get that, that date in their diaries early is, is key. Um, also, not reading the, the build-up and breakdown dates carefully and uh, turning up too late or too early. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen that happen a few times. Uh, yep. Um, th- those, are, those are the kind of things. I think that that communication and engagement from internal teams is really important, knowing how things are tracking and where you are with things. So we do have operational trackers we can make available to listeners So if anyone out there is interested in the ops trackers that we use with clients, do get in touch and we can talk about how we share those with you. But getting back to you, Cathy, we've talked about live animals, which is a fairly unusual request. But what is the most unusual request that you've ever had from an exhibitor? Well, on my my live animals, as well as the crabs and lobsters, I've also got eagles and mice. Wow. Were the mice the dinner for the eagles? Or? Uh, no, they weren't, but it was the same kind of um, uh, pest control kind of companies. <laughs> um, delivering equipment a week early um, and wanting to leave it behind for later than advertised. I, I think the concept, the perception is that, you know, the venue's there, but unfortunately there are other shows. Um, we, we get that quite a lot. Um, acrobats performing directly above the stand during a show open period. Not, not in a designated area, but directly above the stand. Um, running uh, an operational car wash on a stand. Wow. Um, Free showers for exhibitors and visitors in that case. Then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, naked chef doing demos. That sounds like my kind of show. Yep, that was a good one. But he wasn't completely, so that's okay. Um, to be... My, my absolute all-time favourite is uh, an exhibitor who my colleague was trying trying to talk around because he wanted to be enclosed on all four sides of his stand. Oh, really? Yeah. And he couldn't quite grasp the concept that he needed to be seen. Um, so that was an entertaining one. The most common unusual, it's, it's not that unusual, but it, it is a request that a lot of exhibitors ask us. They've, they've opted for shell scheme and then they ring up or, or, or email and say, yes, we want the shell scheme, but we don't want any fascias and we don't want any ceiling grid. <sighs> so 
the question has to be asked, how do the walls stand up? Yeah. And then they get some, some, some uh, are fine about what we, what, what we suggest is that we have to have a return wall and some bracing in the corners um, and maybe in the centre because these walls do have to be structurally safe. Yeah. So th that is the, the unusual, it's not unusual in the occurrence of it, but it is an unusual request. Interesting. One of the things that we've learned on the workshops recently uh, has been people's lack of understanding between the word shell and space and not really thinking about what they've booked um, in the context of everyone else around them and, and who's going to be exhibiting. They, the exhibitors just tend to think about that nine metre space that they've got and what they're going to do in that and that nothing else around them really matters. So we've talked a lot today about how the ops teams uh, can help exhibitors have a more successful show. We've heard a lot about reading the exhibitor manual, communicating with the operations team, making sure that you as an exhibitor understand the rules and that you've built your stand accordingly. But from an operations manager's perspective, what's the one piece of advice you would give to an exhibitor who was planning to exhibit at a show? Again, the word communication, and it comes on so many different levels. The exhibitors are investing a lot of money in their stand, um, the stand's build, uh, the staff, the hotels and subsistence, marketing, refreshments, it, you know, the list does go on and on. Um, and what I mentioned before about keeping a copy uh, of your correspondence about the show so you can build up a history. And it's not just for this show, you know, that that person might have left in the year, two years between the next show. Someone has got a copy of something that they did Um to, to, to be passed on to them so they've got a, a starting point to base their show for the next time whether it is digital uh, on a central file or a hard copy but we get a lot of people saying oh what what, what did we do last year what did our stand look like yeah. um and it, it sometimes we can assist because we do keep uh, space only um stand plans for for, for for the last show on file but sure, surely that should be within their company and just you know they can then grow from that stand and they can they can move on from it and um, it can evolve rather than starting from scratch again. We, we, send, we, we don't send out a lot of paperwork. Most of it is done by email now because um, we are environmentally friendly. Or we strive to it, but we do send out key things at key times that they should have. Um, and then we do send things out digitally as well. So it's keeping that all safe and so that they know what's going on. Um, also, the person who organises the stand might not, in some cases, be the person who attends on site. So it's letting the staff who are on site know what's going to happen, um, where the equipment's coming from, courier names and numbers, the timings of things. Um, when we have build-up um, and breakdown, but build-up mainly, on that, though, it is a building site, and some people um, do turn up in flop flip-flops or um, stuffy sandals or on some occasions in bare feet and it, it's there are so many dangers out on that floor at that time on what they could do and you know the medical centers are, are, are there but um, we don't want them overrun with you know preventable accidents so it, it's passing that information on as well because um, you know really really high heels on that um, build-up day not a good idea <laughs> um, and also letting the staff know what's expected of them. Uh, if they're sitting and standing around looking bored on their stand or playing on their phones or texting their friends, they are wasting the, the exhibitor's money 
uh, and all the time and effort it took to, to, to get the stand to that, that state. Um, after one show uh, we had recently, um, one exhibitor told our sales team that they wouldn't be booking, rebooking because they, they didn't get any good leads um, and they were in a very quiet part of the hall and they didn't get much passing trade. But all the other stands around them did rebook and they had a good show. And the member of the sales team remembered who, who was on that stand and said, well, it's no wonder they didn't have a good show because they were on their phone permanently. So you've got to have, you've got to communicate with your, your um, on-site staff to engage with the visitors because uh, you've put a lot of time and effort in to get to that point. You're right. There is nothing more frustrating than walking around a show that you're really interested in. You're there to buy. You want to have really good conversations with people who can solve your problems and the exhibitors just don't seem that bothered about engaging with you. It's really disheartening as a visitor. Absolutely, absolutely. I really like the one word that you've used there, which was preventable. And I think most of this conversation has been about the fact that everything is pretty much preventable if you just communicate the right information to the right people. Let them know what's expected of them. Let them know where they need to be, what they need to be doing there, and have really clear briefs. So many of the disasters that could happen at shows can be averted if it's, you just communicate to the right people at the right time with the right information. Absolutely. Thanks ever so much for joining us today, Cathy. It's really interesting to talk to someone who's working at the coalface and reinforcing some of the comments and the views that we share with clients and delegates on the workshops. We can often give some advice and talk about how you can use the operations manual and, and the operations team to help you. But it's great to hear from somebody actually working at the front line of that. So who else in the industry do you think it'd be interesting for us to speak to about exhibitions? I've, I've made a list of four people um, and I'll send you their email addresses. Um, but Leanne Newton from ESS, they, she, she runs her own business and she, they, they uh, approve all our space only stand plans. So she deals with a lot of exhibitors and um, their, their ideas and what, what their preconceptions are and what they think they can and can't do. Uh, then I've put uh, uh, Andrew Abbott's Abbo. You met him? Oh, hello, Abbo. Yeah. You know Abbo. Because I think he has a great understanding well, of what, what happens on site. <laughs> and he can talk about what, what exhibitors try and get up to. It's funny, in the training courses that we run, we do tell delegates to go and find out who is the head of health and safety and security on site on the first day, go and make friends with them, buy them a coffee, and you will get the payback from that in buckets over the next few days when things maybe aren't quite going to, uh, according to plan and you need a little bit of help at the venue. Absolutely. Um, then Jenny Green from Showlight. Okay. Um, and then a lady that I've, I'm hopefully going to be doing some work for from Event Shaper, Louise Kiwanuku. Right. Uh, so she runs uh, an operational uh, business, uh, exhibition operations, uh, and she does a variety of shows up and down the country. So, Kathy, it's been great speaking to you today. You've given us some great insight into the life of an operations manager and how exhibitors can work with you to have a more successful show. So you're now working as a freelance operations manager, and I know you've got lots of exciting projects coming up, but if any of our listeners are interested in working with you and want to get in touch, where can they find you? Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn at the moment, um, and I have an email address, which is orchardcathy 
uh, Kathy with a C at gmail.com. And in case you didn't catch that, then please get in touch with us at Inspiring Exhibitors and we can pass on Kathy's details for you. So thanks very much. Good luck with your upcoming projects and enjoy the rest of the summer. Absolutely. So a really packed conversation there with Kathy and hopefully what you got from that is that health and safety and operations isn't about stopping you doing the things that you want to do at your exhibition. It's entirely about helping you do them safely. So hopefully you've got some advice and some inspiration. But any of the questions resulting from that conversation, of course, get in touch with us as always. Coming up in a couple of weeks on the next episode, we were really excited to speak to Richard Fox. Now, Richard is a well-known chef. He's appeared on a number of TV programs. He's also a love, food, hate, waste warrior ambassador, uh, and he works with a lot of organizations up and down the country in promoting great food, great cooking, and abolishing as much waste as we can from our food chain. Now, you might wonder what that has to do with exhibitions, and we've worked with Richard on a number of exhibitions where he's been the compare at the live features area. So he's introducing speakers, recruiting speakers, developing content for visitors. And it's great to get his thoughts on what makes a really good session, what makes it interesting and relevant for those visitors. And that's what he's going to be sharing with you in case you ever want to get on a speaker platform at one of your shows. So that's it for now for us from this week. As always, you can contact us via the website at www.inspiringexhibitors.com. You can follow us on Twitter at ProExtraCo, or you can give us a call. The numbers again are on the website. Have a great couple of weeks planning your exhibitions. There'll be new blog content on the website next week, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon. If you'd like more information about our book, The Exhibitionist, future podcasts and newsletters, please remember to pop over to inspiringexhibitors.com where you'll be able to find all the relevant information. Once again, thank you for listening.